Well, once again, it's, it's time uh, really worshiping the Lord. It's been a great, I guess, something like 10 weeks, 9, 10 weeks we've been doing this, and it, it's just a joy to be able to come into your world. Uh, we appreciate the fact that you let us do that. We know it won't be long. We'll be able to gather publicly. But we also know we'll still be coming into a lot of your worlds. And so to just understand that if you're a guest with us, you just started, you know, in some way connecting with First Baptist Church since this uh, pandemic has, has come about. We appreciate you letting us be a part of your spiritual journey. I know a lot of folks watch because they, uh, their church doesn't have anything. They can't worship. They can't do the online. So you've been a part of us. Uh, some have begun, uh, you know, kind of looking for God during this time. So we're thankful that we can be a part of things. And we want to encourage you to know that we're, we're always willing to be a part of your spiritual journey. I really, uh, I love the Old Testament. I don't preach from it much. Obviously, you know, as Christians, we focus on the story, the life of Jesus as revealed to us in the Gospels. We focus on his resurrection, the writings that tell us how to come to Christ, live the Christian life. But the Old Testament is so important. I love it. I actually taught the Old Testament uh, on, the, on the college level. And, and probably one of the, the, the most fascinating guys that I think is in all of the Old Testament, really all the Old Scripture, is Elijah. And that's where we kind of are. We're on the road with Elijah because Elijah, this unbelievable prophet, he, he travels a great deal. In fact, we're going to see it today, just how much he travels. But Elijah is just prophet of God who has this unbelievable ministry. He served in the 9th century BC from about um, 875 to about 853. He really it didn't serve a long time, and he and he's kind of comes and goes. It's not like he's constantly there like you would see with Isaiah or, or Jeremiah. Uh, he just he kind of comes and goes, and uh, he's predominantly served in relationship to the kingship of Ahab and, and then one of his sons that continued to serve after him very briefly. He was a part of that. And, uh, I, you know, Elisha's just this unbelievable figure that comes and he preaches the word of God in such powerful ways. And, and we have seen already, we saw a couple of weeks ago, he was on the road to Zarephath and, and we, we saw that, uh, that uh, there is only uh, one God, the Lord, and he is always in control. Last week, he was on the road to Carmel, and, and we saw that no one can follow God part-time. And, and so today, we're going to come to 1 Kings 19. Uh, the story of Elijah is from 1 Kings 17 to 2 Kings chapter 2. But 1 Kings 19, uh, we see him on the road to Horeb. And in uh, this time, as we go through the passage in a few minutes in the message, what I, what I want you to get out of the message today is simply this. When life is at its hardest, and we are at our lowest... God has a purpose for our life. Think about it. When life is at its hardest, which kind of is right now for many of you, and we seem to be at our lowest, we can never forget God always has a purpose, a plan. He's a part of our life. So I want to again begin today by uh, talking about the day after. Uh, sometimes when a big event occurs or a big moment in our life, the day after can be kind of difficult. I, many times I've seen after a championship of some sport, a Super Bowl a few years ago, I saw this. I don't remember the team or the coach. And they asked the coach, how long are you going to enjoy this? And he said, for about a day. And then the day after, we got to get to work. Yeah. Christmas is the biggest day of the year and there's so much excitement. But the day after Christmas always is kind of difficult. And so we come metaphorically, at least, to a proverbial day after. It could literally be the day after uh, what occurs. You have, you have Elijah, this tremendous event on Mount Carmel. I'm not going to go back over everything over the last two weeks. You can, if, you, if you haven't been a part of one of those messages, you can go back and look at those. But you, you have the worship of Baal, this false god Baal that doesn't exist. And the people of Israel starting to worship Baal. They were worshiping Baal as opposed to worshiping their god, Yahweh, the one true Lord. 
And on Mount Carmel, there's this great demonstration that shows that Yahweh is the only God, and he is their God. And there's this great revival that breaks out. The people start worshiping. Even King Ahab, you know, in some ways, starts to kind of repent a little bit and begin to worship and honor God. You know, there's the killing of the prophets of Baal, which indicates that. And then we come to chapter 19. And so beginning in verse 1, here's, here's what it says. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elisha had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. So now into the Elijah narrative, really is introduced Jezebel. Now we've already seen something about her in chapter 16, before Elijah comes onto the scene, but we're told that Ahab marries Jezebel. Jezebel was the daughter of the king of the Phoenicians. And as I shared, the Phoenicians, the, uh, the Sidonians, that group were, were, were a country. They were not a powerful country, but economically they were very rich and they've always sort of had an alliance with Israel. And so their king, in order to solidify that alliance, married off his daughter Jezebel to uh, the king Omri's son Ahab. And Jezebel worshipped the false pagan gods we know as from Baalism, Baal and Asherah and them. It wasn't just that she worshipped them. It wasn't just that when she came to Israel, she wanted to continue to worship them. She wanted to eradicate the worship of Yahweh. In other words, she wanted to completely discontinue Israel's worship of their God, the Lord, who is the only God that exists, by the way. And so she began to kill the prophets. We see that in chapter 18. She began to kill the prophets, and Obadiah was able to preserve a couple, uh, uh, two groups of them, about 100 in caves. And so she now becomes a part of the scene. In fact, we might really see, see uh, that from this point forward, even the next weekend when we get to chapter 21 with uh, Naboth's Vineyard, really Jezebel becomes more predominant to some degree than Ahab, at least in opposition to Elijah. Uh, some may wonder, how could she have the power to kill Elisha when already we have seen you know, that tremendous victory at Mount Carmel last week and the people returning to God? But we'll see next week, Jezebel was a very corrupt, cunning, and evil woman who would stoop at nothing. Now, nothing was too low for her to get her wish. And so she threatens uh, to kill Elisha. It's ironic, she threatens to do so uh, by the very gods that Elisha, the day before, had shown to be non-existent. And so she threatens his life. So you have the day after. Now, what is Elisha going to do? We would expect Elisha, this great prophet of God, this guy who started a drought and ended a drought with his word. God used him. This great prophet that God used to bring this tremendous victory on Mount Carmel. We would expect him to have absolutely no fear of such an evil, horrible, godless woman. But instead, verse 3 tells us this. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. Now think about that. Here is the prophet of God who brought about one of the most amazing events in all of the Old Testament. <laughs> that having God in the middle of a drought bring fire down to consume an offering and completely obliterate any concept of Baal as being legitimate. The next day he's afraid, and he runs. And, and he doesn't just run, he begins to journey from Israel, the north, to the southern kingdom of Judah. And there in Judah, he releases his servant. He says, you're no longer in my, my employ. 
And, and then he goes even further into the wilderness. Now, by releasing his servant, he's basically at this point giving up on ministry. So what we really see is Elijah kind of resigning from being a prophet. You know, I'm through. Servant, you go. I'm not in Israel. Now, I'm in Judah. And so he's there. And in verse 4, this is what we see with Elijah. He came to a broom bush, or some of your verses may have juniper tree. And he sat down under it. And then he prayed that he might die. Lord, he says, I've had enough. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Now, you know, Elijah's connecting with his ancestors who had served God. And apparently, in his view, it had come for nothing because the people have worshipped Baal. And even though there was this great victory, he seems to forget about all of that victory and is just focusing on his state. Now, and, and we can be harsh to Elijah. And I know sometimes I've heard messages, I've read things, out, and, and pastors and, and others can be, teachers can be hard on Elijah. But I get it. I mean, I, I, I kind of get where he's coming from. I mean, you, you, you do all this stuff for God. You, you basically put your life completely in God's hands. You demonstrate your total, absolute faith in God. And then some nobody, some no-account pagan, godless woman has the audacity to threaten your life. And you would think God was just zapper dead, and he doesn't. And in that moment, from the highest of highs, he goes to the lowest of lows. He is in despair. Many times people talk about him being in depression, not necessarily clinical depression, but we all understand that, that just sense of hopelessness and frustration. And that's where he is. He's got nothing he wants to do. In the next few verses, we see kind of how God deals with him. I'm not going to read them. I'll just tell you about them. But Beginning then in verse you know, 5, 6, and 7, Elijah is asleep, wanting to, to die. He's through. And the Lord sends his angel. And he wakes Elijah up very gently. And he says, Elijah, i got some food for you to eat. And you need to eat and you need to drink and you need to rest some more. And this is an amazing thing about God. How does God deal with Elijah in this moment of giving up? Does God chastise him? Does God you know, come down hard on him? Does he judge him? No. He shows mercy is what he does. We seem to forget just how loving and understanding our God is towards us. In the previous chapter, God judged sin, as is his right to do so. The, the, the prophets of Baal, who God had put to death through Elijah, those were evil, wicked men. Um, not only did they deny the existence of one true God, they worshipped a false God. As I've explained the last two weeks, it was a grotesquely evil form of worship that involved the sacrificing of children. So God had every right to judge them especially after he showed his great victory. But he is not harsh with his servant. He is not harsh in his moment of need. He shows the compassion that God has. And he lets him sleep some more. The angel lets him sleep some more, and then wakes him again, lets him rest, and, and feeds him again and says, now you have to go on a journey. I have something for you to do. I want you to see how God deals with Elijah. Because it, it translates in how he deals to us. In our darkest hour, God will show us compassion, and then he will challenge us to go farther. When life is at its weakest, God shows compassion. But then he doesn't just say, hey, you know, regroup a little bit, but you don't have to do anything. No, this is the amazing thing about God. He challenges Elijah to go farther. He's got more for Elijah to do. Elijah, you're not through yet. I got more for you. He tells Elijah, I want you to take a 40-day journey and go further into the wilderness 
to Mount Oreb. Now, Mount Oreb happens to be the same thing that we see with uh, Moses as Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai and Mount Oreb, same thing. It's part of a range, same place. The, the one of the amazing things about chapter 19 is it has a lot of nuances and a lot of subtext. There's a lot of connection to the past of Israel and then looking to the future. Here's some of that subtext that we can miss easily. He says, I want you to go to a place where I revealed myself in an unbelievable way to Moses. Moses got to see me. Moses, there, I gave him the Ten Commandments. You're going to go to that same place. He is, therefore, is understood, going to encounter the God who reveals himself. And there, just like God gave a task to Moses, he's going to give a task to Elijah. So Elijah goes. And when he gets there, in, in, in verse 9, he's on, uh, on the mountain in the presence of God. In verse 9, he says this, And the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, you know, we might be tempted to think, Well, you sent me here, God, that's why I'm here. But it's not in the sense of what are you doing physically here. This is a question to do with the spiritual connection of Elijah to God. In Genesis 3, after the sin of David and Bathsheba, excuse me, not David and Bathsheba, Genesis 3 was Adam and Eve. Because you're not here and I don't see you, my mind drifts. David and Bathsheba was 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'll deal with their sin in the fall. So I don't know why I said David and Bathsheba in Genesis 3. We can mark this as one of my many mistakes. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve had sinned. And so God goes into the garden. And he says, where are you, Adam? Adam had hid. Now, God knew where Adam was. God knows all. But he wanted Adam to recognize that Adam had moved away from God. And so here we see in 1 Kings 19, where are Elijah? What, what are you doing here? God knew why he was there. He wanted Elijah to understand that he had begun to move away, not from faith, but where God wanted him to be. It's a powerful thing to think about God asking us to question where are we. In fact, that's a question in many ways we have to ask ourselves in terms of our relationship with God. Where, where are we at that point? And some of you need to ask yourself, where are you in your relationship with God? You know, God wants to know, where are you in, in terms of your faith? Do you have the faith? Or have you allowed your faith, your relationship, to slip? Have you stopped serving God? Have you stopped living for God? Have you stopped worshiping God? Have you begun in this difficult time to question God? God's simply saying, hey, in your faith, where are you? He may ask you that about your marriage. Where are you in your marriage? A lot of you have your marriages. They're starting to crumble apart. You made these vows before God, vows to one another, and, and you begin to, to distance yourself. Just like Elijah tried to distance himself from God, you're distancing yourself from one another. And God's saying, where, where are you? Where are you in your life? Where are you when it comes to the things that God wants for you? This question is an opportunity for you to reflect, especially during this time, at where you are in terms of God, because God wants you to be connected to him. See, here's the thing you're getting to remember, and it's so important. God is concerned with where you are and what you're doing in your life. God is concerned with where you are in your life and what you're doing. He never, he never stops being concerned about you. And when you get to the place like Elijah, and, and you begin to move away from God, God is not moving away from you. God is drawing you back to him. So let me just ask you this question. Where are you 
in your relationship with God? Where are you? I mean, just one nice thing about not being here is you can, if you're by yourself, you can even answer that out loud. But it, certainly it gives you the opportunity to, to pause and think. If, if you're watching this later on when it's recorded, you can even, you know, pause it right now and begin to think, where am I in my relationship with God? Because here's the thing. Your relationship with God matters to God. God cares always where you are. And when you're living in the day after, it's easy to distance yourself, to completely distance yourself away from God. So where are you? We come into the second thing from this passage. It is the day after, the day after. Once again, it's metaphorical, but there's the day after, and then there's got to be the day after that. When God asked this question, we begin in, in verse 10. Verse 10 through 14, I'm not going to read it, I'm going to explain it real quick. It's probably the best known of the verses from chapter 19, probably the most misunderstood also. Elijah just kind of goes off on this rant. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been so frustrated and you've had enough and enough and you just kind of go off on a rant and this rant is, you know, got truth in it, but it's also got your interpretation. It's just kind of a mixed thing. And, and so Elijah just kind of goes off on this rant. God, you ask who I am. You drug me out to Mount Horeb. I know what the significance of this is with, you know, with Moses. Let me just tell you, all your people have broken your covenant and they destroyed the, the, the altars, the places to worship you. They're destroyed. Not only that, they've killed everyone. I'm all that's left, and they're trying to kill me. That's where I'm at. Now, now, there's a little bit of truth to some of that. But Elijah seems to forget some of the most important things, like God had just a few weeks earlier had this tremendous event on Mount Carmel where the people returned to God. Obadiah had told him there are prophets alive. They're not all dead. God had basically used Elijah in some unbelievably powerful ways. He's forgetting all of that. And so God says, Elijah, here's what I want you to do. Stand on the mountain, and I'm going to let you come into my presence. And then three events happen. There is a great, unbelievable wind that breaks apart the rocks. Living in uh, Las Cruces, we can understand the wind, especially our church up on the Mesa. high possibility when I walk out of here a little bit, there'll be a strong wind blowing. This is an unbelievable wind. And then there was an earthquake, and then there was a fire. And the comment is made that in none of those events, those phenomena, would you find God. Now, that doesn't mean that God never used those. He did. God would use different things to reveal himself. In fact, he had just used fire at Mount Carmel in chapter 18 to reveal himself. So it's not that God never reveals himself that way. And then there is a phrase that is very difficult to translate from the Hebrew into the English. It says there was the sound of a gentle whisper or a gentle blowing or a still small voice. Literally in the Hebrew, it means there was a sound of silence. There was silence, and in that silence, there was this presence. And that is what Elijah experienced. Now, oftentimes, this is where people stop, and they want to talk about how you experience God. And their message is something along the fact that you're not going to experience God just in the great things, but if you'll just be quiet, and you'll be still, and you'll be patient and wait, somewhere in the stillness, God will reveal himself. And I get that, I understand that, but it's kind of missing the point. Because you got to be where Elijah is, or was. Elijah was this great prophet who had done great things. He had spoken the word, and the rain stopped. And then he prayed, and the rain came back. On Mount Carmel, he had 
spoken the word, and fire came from heaven. When the boy was dead, Elijah prayed and brought him back to life. Elijah had experienced God in the biggest of events. But now what God is sharing with Elijah is the time is going to come when it will not be in the big. It will be in the small. From this point forward, Elijah takes, to some degree, a very quiet role in the life of Israel. We'll see, you know, the next couple of weeks, kind of how quiet that really is. And the key to all this is not whether God reveals in the big or the small. It's the fact that God reveals, period. He's saying, Elijah, I'm revealing myself to you. I haven't stopped. I'm still there. I talk oftentimes about the four pillars of the Christian faith. Revelation, creation. We see that from the Old Testament. And then the New Testament, incarnation and resurrection. Resurrection, incarnation, creation are historical events. They occurred. All that occurs because of the revelation of God. God is revealing himself. And one of the fundamental teachings we have is that God reveals himself to us. He most completely reveals himself to us in Jesus Christ. That's why it's so important that we come to Jesus. He is saying to Elijah, I'm revealing myself. And so here's the thing. In revealing himself, this is important. God reveals himself even in our lowest moments, which is what's happening with Elijah. And when he does, he does so with purpose. Because he's saying, Elijah, I still have a purpose for you. You're not retiring. In your lowest moments, I'm revealing myself to you, and I'm doing it with purpose. Something I want you to understand. And so we come to what that purpose is going to be. In verse 15, it's where we see it. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. You're going to go back. And go to the desert of Damascus. That's in Syria. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meolah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. And yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel. All whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elisha went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. So these three guys are introduced. And basically what God says is you're going to go anoint them. I have a task for them. Now, Haziel is, is a, a commander in the army of the Syrians. And without great difficulty in, in, in going to the explanation, from time to time, the kingdom of Syria and the Israelites would, would kind of join together and they'd be allies and sometimes they'd be enemies. He was going to anoint him to take the place of Ben-Hadid. Even though they weren't Israelites, Elijah was tasked to do that. Then he was going to uh, anoint Jehu, who would destroy the house of Ahab. He would kill uh, the house of Ahab. His son Ahaziah would be killed by him. Um, and it, uh, not, would not be killed by him, but his next son Joram would be killed by by. Uh, uh, Jehu, and then Jezebel be killed by Jehu. So he's going to destroy uh, the, the second son of Ahab to serve Jehoram and Jezebel and all the house. And Elisha, as serving as the prophet, he was going to give guidance to the northern kingdom, especially to Jehu, uh, would be there as well. Now, the only one that Elijah actually anoints is Elisha. He will anoint Jehu and Haziel as, as an extension of Elijah's ministry. The purpose of all this is very simple. Elijah, you're still involved in my plan. I have a big plan, and you're still involved with it. Here's what I want to happen, and you're going to see that it gets done. It's a quieter thing. It's not the big, it's not the fire coming down, it's not the bringing the bed back to life. It's just anointing three men. 
But those three men, and this is critical, will have a bigger impact on the life of Israel than Elijah did immediately. I mean, Elijah had the big thing in in, in Mount Carmel in chapter 18. That's a huge event. It doesn't have lasting repercussions and influence, but what's going to happen right here will last on and on and on with these three guys. So it brings us to a place where, where... we need to kind of understand what, what's happening, going to happen. I want to kind of summarize all of this. Just let me say that when we come to the Old Testament and we want to really apply it to our life, we need to do it understanding through the eyes of being a Christian. I've said many times, the Old Testament promises us something the New Testament fulfills. Um, we, we, we don't live during the life of Elijah. We don't live in the same circumstances. We just can't take those experiences and directly apply them to us. It's hard to do. Interpreting a passage, saying what it really meant in that context is critical. But when we apply that passage, we have to take the interpretation of that context and apply it to life in our context. And we do that in many ways as Christians through Jesus. So let me just say this. There's two things I kind of want you to see. The first, looking at Elijah, just to understand this. God has a purpose for us even when our life seems to be without purpose. Elijah got to the point where he thought his life had no purpose anymore. He quit. But God still had a purpose for him. Now, for you and I, that purpose is in Jesus. Because we look at it from a New Testament perspective. We, you know, we're not, we're not going to go back to that day and age and try to understand things the way they did and directly apply it. We can't. But we, we apply it through Christ. First of all, to come into a saving relationship with him. So it's important that we come into a saving relationship with Jesus. If you don't follow Christ, if you're not a Christian, if you've never given your life to Christ, you're never going to experience God's purpose because that's the first thing you've got to experience. The most important part of God's purpose in your life is that you trust Jesus to be your Savior. If you don't do that, nothing else really matters. But then once you trust Christ to be your Savior, then our purpose is always connected into our service of Jesus. How we serve and live as a follower of Christ is determines what our purpose is. Our purpose is connected to that. So his purpose is that way. His purpose is always going to be connected to Jesus. But the second thing that I want you to see is this, and it, it really, it, it's the heart of all of this for us today. God reveals himself and his purpose in the simplest of ways. He reveals himself and his purpose for us in very simple ways. So often people want the grand. They want the spectacular. I have people coming all the time, I'm looking for a sign from God. Well, God's given you signs. It's called scripture, prayer, worship, and just serving. If you want to know what the simplicity is, if you're not worshiping God, how do you ever expect to know what God's purpose is for your life? God calls us to worship. What has made these last few weeks so difficult is worship is really something we do together. I read so many stuff. Well, you can worship God at home, and you can worship God through TV and all that. No, you really can't. We try Worship is a collective thing. Yes, there is private worship. We are created by God. It's within our DNA to relate to him and to other people and to worship together. That's why we need to come together as quickly as possible. That's part of worship. So if you're not worshiping God, how are you going to understand what God wants? It involves our prayer life. I'm not talking about the formalities of prayer. I'm just communicating with God. If you're not sharing your life with God, communicating with God, asking him to show me your will. We ask God for stuff. Quit asking God for stuff. Quit asking God for blessings. Quit asking God, you know, to give you things. Ask God to reveal himself to you so that you'll know what it is God wants for your life. 
It's through the, the scriptures. In the gospels, we have the life of Jesus, God in the flesh, given to us. In the letters, we have the expectations that are written, the, the teachings for us. You want a sign from God, and you never open up the Bible? There is no other sign. That's it. That's how he works. Teaching you through his word. And then ultimately, if you want to know God's purpose for your life, just serve God. And if you, what I tell folks all the time, if you want to know the big purpose, you know, the big things to do, just start doing the small things. And in doing the small things, God reveals. Elijah was a servant who quit serving. Of course, his life seemed without purpose. He stopped doing the very thing God created him to do, which is serve. So God had to say, Elijah, you got to get back to serving. That's what you do. It's just not that complicated. We make Christianity so hard. We make it so complicated. And it's really simple. It's not easy. It's simple. Worship God. Serve God. Pray to the Lord and read the revelation of God to us. All in the context of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And you can get out of the day after. You want to leave the day after? That's how you leave the day after. In the simplicity of God revealing himself to you. In prayer, in study, in service, in worship. God will reveal himself to you. And you can go from the day after to the day after the day after. And that's really where all of us need to be. See, when life is at its lowest point, and it is at its hardest moments, God still has a purpose for us. And so some of you today, you need to understand that purpose. And I would just share with you the heart of that purpose is committing your life to Christ. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, that's what you need to do. And I'm preaching from the Old Testament, I get that. And I'm not preaching about trusting Jesus, and yet... That's really what it's all about. I mean, Elijah is looking to that day, looking forward. All of the Old Testament looks forward to Christ. If you've never trusted Christ to be your Savior, you can do that right now. You can, on the live stream here, you can text in a moment. When the band comes in place, there'll be a phone number, text respond. One of our pastors will get with you in a very short period of time to talk to you. Or you can email us. You can go to our website and get under contact and, and, and just contact us. We'll pray for you. We'll do whatever you would like for us to do. But I'm going to invite you to give your life to Christ. And if you're giving your life to Christ, here's the thing. Where are you with God? What are you doing here? Where's your life in worship? Where's your life in service? Where's your life in prayer? Where's your life in the scriptures? How are you going to know the purpose of God in your life if you're not there? It's simple. Make a commitment to get there. All of you can experience the compassion of God. You can experience the challenge of God in your life if you will but take your life and yield it to him. And so what I invite you to do today is to give your life to God completely. Look for the purpose that God has for you in the simplest of ways. So Father, thank you for Elijah in the message that we have. And allow us, Father, to learn from him from the highs to the lows from the great victory on Carmel to the day after, to the day after, the day after. And all of that, Father, to know that when life is at its hardest and at its lowest, you are there for us. You have a purpose for us, but that purpose is always going to be in Jesus. So, Father, let us look to Jesus in our worship and our study. 
in our prayer and in our service. And in his name we pray. Amen.